of your Bible. Church age. This time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it a little bit shorter. Not my lesson, just the timeline. Lessons never get short. I wanted to make sure you were amen in the right thing, all right? You remember my little timeline that I put up there? We're in the church age, and we've talked about how uh, we will go into a seven-year time period, and then we're going to move after this seven-year time period. I'll talk about what is the precipitating event that takes place in order to move us into this 1,000-year time frame, which we will call the millennial reign, all right? We've been talking about end times, last days. You could virtually go forever on this subject. In fact, there are some ministries that are dedicated solely to the instruction of what's happening in last days or end times, and many of you would probably be familiar with those ministries. So you could spend a lifetime in the Revelation, in Daniel, in some of these passages that talk about what goes on during the end times. It is fascinating to talk about. Uh, I enjoy it for a season. And then I'm reminded that while I'm watching and waiting and readying myself, Jesus also said, occupy until I return. And basically he's saying, do business, be busy about the things of the kingdom until he returns. And so we're not going to spend forever here. In fact, probably we're going to wrap it up tonight. And then we're going to start some, some other things and do some other studies on Wednesday night. But we can't finish up unless we talk about the millennial reign. And so I entitled the lesson tonight... The last chapter, we win. Isn't that good news? It doesn't matter what it looks like now. It's not the last chapter. The last chapter, we win. Now, I'm not literally going to read to you the last chapter. I've got to read to you two chapters before the last chapter in order to talk about the millennial reign. But I'm going to go ahead and read this to you because it's, it's just excellent to hear. John said when he wrote the book, he said, Blessed is he who reads or hears of the words of this book. So there's a blessing here, and I don't want to miss my blessing. So in Revelation 20, verse 1, it says, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Can you say amen to that passage? And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Do you ever think, does the devil ever get shut up? Yes, he does. Shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the 1,000 years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I saw, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those that had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired... 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life. I'll read that again. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we're going to talk about the millennium. Now, I always found it fascinating to note that seven years, this seven-year time period of tribulation encompasses Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation 19. Isn't that fascinating? Fourteen full chapters are given to seven years. When you get to the millennium, the millennium takes just one chapter. Isn't that interesting? Seven years take 14 chapters. A thousand years takes one chapter. I'm not sure I understand why that is. Uh, maybe that says something, but I just find that rather interesting how, how it works out that way. And um, we will see here in that seven-year time period, we talked about the things. We talked about uh, seals. Remember seven seals, uh, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls of wrath <clears throat> are poured out until finally when that last bowl is poured out, um, it is a cataclysmic event, um, which we call Armageddon. And Armageddon takes place where basically the nations of the world gather uh, against Israel. Armageddon is just our shortened form of Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo, which is where apparently uh, that will be the focal point or the center point of this great battle that is arrayed against Israel. And what happens is, is when it looks like all is lost for little Israel, all of a sudden Christ breaks through. And he comes breaking through at this point, and this is, this is what we would literally call this point the second coming. Now remember, we talked about the rapture. The rapture technically is not the second coming. It is the, it's the catching away of the saints so they don't experience the wrath of God. However, the second coming actually comes at this place when he splits through the clouds, he comes back to this earth, he intervenes in this great battle, and it is at this point that the Antichrist and the false prophet are defeated and they are tossed, it says, into the lake of fire. And once they're tossed into the lake of fire, as Christ has come with his saints who have been caught away with him, um, it is at this point that he sets up on earth what we know as his millennial reign. He will bind the dragon, put him in a pit somewhere. I, I don't know how all this works, but there's a pit somewhere that will be reserved for him. And for 1,000 years, imagine that, 1,000 years, there will be peace like the world has never known before, and we call that the millennial time period. Now let's talk just a little bit about the millennium. 
The millennium is all of three verses in chapter 20. Isn't that interesting? The little that we can piece together about this time period is, is it not only will be an incredibly lengthy period of time, but it will be a time where the saints rule with Christ here on this earth. Uh, there will have been the first resurrection that takes place at the same time, where those who are tribulation martyrs, those who gave up their lives during this particular time period because they refused to worship and give their allegiance to the beast, those who perhaps were beheaded, killed, any one of a number of martyrdom uh, uh, aspects that were brought to bear on their life, these will have place in, in a resurrection at that time period, and those tribulation saints, along with the saints that have been with the Lord, uh, that were received by him uh, through the rapture, will come, and they will rule, and they will reign here on the earth for those 1,000 years. Now, the primary purpose of the millennium, as I've come to understand it, is that it will be the place where all of the prophecies, the remaining prophecies, will be fulfilled, all of the remaining covenant promises that God has made, whether it be to the nation Israel or whether it be even to his people or to the saints, will be fulfilled. And God will restore all things as it was meant to be to his people during this particular time period, 1,000 years. Now, there are some interesting things that I want to just share with you about the millennium that perhaps you've never thought of before. The millennium, while it will be uh, just an incredible time of peace and prosperity, wonderful rule and reign of Christ himself. It's interesting that there are going to be a couple other features that people don't think of when they think of this time period. Number one, sin is not abolished completely in the millennial reign. Now, sin is not completely dealt with yet. Christ and his saints are ruling and reigning, so there is, of course, absolute suppression. There is absolute suppression of all outward manifestation of sin. I have come to understand the millennial time period to be a time period that, you know, we're not going to have to worry about whether adult bookstores crop up or not. We're not going to have to worry about, you know, what kind of films get produced. I mean, it's going to be an unusual time of righteousness in this particular time period. But having said that, it does not mean that sin has absolutely been dealt with. Sin will have been restrained... Because, obviously, who's in a pit? Satan. Obviously, it's going to be restrained, but it's not eradicated. Now, how do I know this to be true? Well, number two is that children will be born during this time period. In fact, many people actually believe that um, the, at the millennial uh, time of the millennium, there will be more people inhabiting the earth than there are right now. Uh, and children will be born during this time period, and they will be born under the same curse. Yeah, everyone's born under. Many people uh, will be born and inhabit the earth at that particular time period. Then number three, people will still be subject to deception. How do I know this? I know this because the Bible tells us after this 1,000-year period, Satan is loosed from this pit for, it says, a short time. And it appears clearly that there will be those who submitted to Christ's rule during this time. Obviously, they will have functioned under Christ's rulership during this time, but how many of you know there are a lot of people who say they function under Christ's rule, but if it's not an internal commitment, or if it's not in the heart, it can easily be turned. And the Bible tells us that when Satan goes out, he goes out 
after this millennial time period, and it says that he has the ability to deceive people and to deceive the nations. In fact, the Bible tells us he deceives a great, vast number of people. And this is the most amazing thing. Number one is, it is amazing that you could go through this time period with Christ actually ruling, with his saints actually ruling. It's, it's amazing that you could go through this time, people and, time period and still be deceived. But Satan, who is the father of lies, is the expert at deception. And somehow or another, he's able to do that. And this is the last insurrection that the Lord puts up with. When this deception covers the earth at the end of the millennial time period, it is the last insurrection. And finally, at the end, this incredible number of people, along with Satan himself, the Bible tells us, is consumed by fire. And so these people, of course, being consumed by fire, they die. It says at that point, Satan is tossed into the lake of fire. Well, if we're going to talk about how to get the red marker out for that, shouldn't I? The lake of fire. He is tossed into the lake of fire. After all of this happens, we begin to move through what is called the great white throne judgment. There's going to be a, 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 the last judgment, the Bible tells us. Great white throne judgment. Now, if you've been taken away in that rapture, somewhere in here, you've already stood before Bema seat, the Bible tells us. And as a believer, you've been judged for that which you've done on earth. Uh, if you've received the Lord and you've lived for the Lord and you're standing before him at the Bema seat, it is, it is a place where rewards are handed out. Uh, it, it says that some of your works will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble, but that which cannot uh, uh, be burned away will remain, and that will be as gold and, and precious metal, and it will be passed out to you as rewards. And so for the believers that were taken out of this time period, they've already been through a judgment. So, so for us that are here tonight, we're just going to believe that this crew is going to be here. All right, we'll, we'll believe that's where this crew will be. Now, if you ain't there, it ain't my fault. Wasn't because you weren't told. But now we've got to deal, deal with people who gave their heart to Jesus Christ in that time period here. They're the tribulation saints and the martyrs. We've, we've, we've got to deal with people that came into being during that thousand-year time period, there's still lots of people that have yet to have their day in court. And so for these folks, this is what we're talking about, that great white throne judgment. The tribulation saints will stand here, all the unsaved dead. If people died during the church age unsaved, that's where they'll stand before God, at the great white throne judgment. Everybody, everybody has their day in court. There will, you, will, you, will not, you will not in any way, shape, or form, anybody that says, anybody that says that, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, you know, they, they didn't know, they, won't, they don't understand, they don't get it, I will assure you, before everything is settled, before the accounts are settled, everybody's going to get it. Everybody will get it. And it will be here that these groups are directed one of two ways. It says here that at the great white throne judgment, that those that have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, there, of course, will be received as unto the Lord. The second group, it says, 
whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, they too will be cast, the Bible says, into the lake of fire. Now, this is what we would refer to. The Bible says lake of fire. I'll mention this in just a second, so do not put it on the screen yet. The Greek word for this is the word Gehenna. We translate it lake of fire, but Gehenna is what we also translate by the word hell. All right? So let's talk about this for just a minute. I'm going to start first with the bad news, all right? I figure if I start with the bad news, I can end with the good news, all right? And then we can dismiss the night with good news. But there are four distinct locations that are often confused when it comes to talking about hell. Now, the first word, uh, if you'll throw that on the screen now, there's a word that we uh, sometimes see translated right in the Bible. Sometimes it's not translated right. It's the word Hades. Hades. At times, Hades is translated hell. At times, Hades is translated grave. The grave. It is Hades. I'm back here in the church age. Hades is the tank. Now, this is even prior to the, prior to the cross. All right? I'm, I'm dealing with this time period prior to the cross. Hades. Hades is the tank that people went to when they died. Um, in the Hebrew, and I'll flash it up here, guys, don't flash it yet, because I know I'm kind of skipping around in my notes. But in the Hebrew, at times we'll still see it in the Old Testament, the word Sheol. Sheol means grave. It means Hades. Uh, sometimes it's translated hell. But Hades, rightly understood, is the tank that everybody went to when they died. Hades. Now, before Christ's death, resurrection, uh, event, the cross event, and then the resurrection event. Before this, Hades was divided up into two sides of the tank. There was the paradise side, and there was the torment side. And the Bible says that there was a great gulf affixed in between these two. Now, if you ever read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that is not a parable. The rich man and Lazarus is a true story that Jesus tells in order to let people understand what's taking place in the underworld. And so when folks died, if they died righteously under the Old Covenant, they would be taken to paradise. If they died unrighteously under the Old Covenant, they'd be taken to torment. And the Bible tells us about a rich man and Lazarus and how uh, that's how eternity shook out for them. But the Bible also tells us that when Jesus died, how many of you know he was in the grave for three days? And during this time period, he just, you know, he just wasn't sleeping. There were things going on. The Bible tells us some interesting things about those three days and what took place. Now, the best verse, believe it or not, is in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. In fact, guys, there's three passages I put right in a row. Acts, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. If you could throw all those up there, that'd be great. Acts 2.31. Listen to this. It says... Acts 2.31, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Acts 2.31 says that during that time period that we would say he was dead in the grave, Jesus descended to Hades. Didn't stay there, but that's where he descended, into Hades. Turn to Ephesians 4.8. Ephesians 4.8, it says, 
Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he, meaning Jesus, also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So again, Paul said here in Ephesians that during this time period, before he ascended, he descended into the lower parts, into Hades. And then finally, we find a little bit more information in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So this is where he went. He went and preached to people here in Hades, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved uh, through water. So here we find, uh, again, a passage that says he went down into Hades, into this tank, and he begins to preach to those who are in prison. Now, there were two things, basically, he did while he was there. First thing he did when he preached, he proclaimed victory to every spirit. He proclaimed victory to those who refused to believe that there was a day the Messiah would come. He preached victory to those who walked in unrighteousness before God. He, he preached victory. He looked at those that were in prison and he said, here I am. So that's one thing he did. He proclaimed victory. Remember the Bible says that, oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? In fact, later on, it'll say that he holds the keys to what? Death and hell and grave. And he holds the keys. Where'd he get them keys? He got them down there. He went and got them. Hallelujah. And then the second thing he did was he proclaimed release to the captives who died righteously under the old covenant. In other words, he emptied out paradise. Now, you say, well, wow. Really, you have to understand, you get, everybody, gets, everybody has to go to heaven the same way. That's by faith in Jesus Christ. You and I exercise faith in an event that has already taken place. Old Testament saints had to exercise faith forward in an event that had yet to take place. Are you with me? And, and so no matter, they were bringing bulls and goats, but how many of you know that bull and that goat wasn't cleansing them from sin? Those were just illustrations those were just types of the sacrifice that would one day take place and that bull that bull or that goat wasn't going to get you to heaven it was the blood of Jesus but as that sacrifice was being made it helped them understand and see the day that would yet come when the lamb the perfect lamb once slain before the foundation of the world would bring redemption to them and so he went proclaiming that saying I am he I am the lamb that was slain you sacrificed thousands of them, but I am he that you were envisioning in a day that was yet to come. And so today, right now, today, now this is before the cross. Remember, he, he, he descends, he preaches. When he was raised from the dead and when he ascended, the Bible tells us very clearly, if you'll go back and read those passages, there were, there were people that were raised along with Christ. I mean, the Bible tells us people raised, were raised from the dead. 
uh, when he was raised from the dead. I mean, it talks about these unusual miracles that took place. These, these were just signs of paradise emptying out, and now these spirits are with him. To be absent in body is now to be present with the Lord, and Hades no longer has two tanks, but Hades has one tank now, and that's torment. So when, when somebody dies, if somebody dies, they're saved, they're born again, you say, well, where do they go? The Bible says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. So when we die, wherever he is, that's where we go. That wherever he is, that's where we go. Where do those that die unrighteously go? They go to Hades. And unfortunately, there are no two compartments anymore. One compartment, and it's torment. All right? And that's what happens now. We'll leave that, and we'll come back to it here in just a second. There's a second word, sometimes that's translated hell. It's the word Tartarus. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, as well as in Jude 6, we find Tartarus. Tartarus, apparently, is, is a pit that was created by God in order that certain angels that fell with Lucifer, who were so despicable in, in what they did, they, 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 they could not be in any way released and, and worked in the earth. My, my view is this. I can't prove it. This is, this is thus saith Kevin. It is my opinion. But I honestly believe that those angels that kept not their first estate, and in Genesis chapter 6, where it says the sons of God came and had relations with the daughters of, of, of men, and it said giants roamed the earth, I believe that those angels that kept not their first estate and tried to procreate with human beings were these despicable angels that were taken and were put in Tartarus and chained up. Now, that's my particular view. Other people may not believe that. That's, that's what I believe. And it says in verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. This is Tartarus. The book of Jude, verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. So um, there's, there's Tartarus, and, and it, it is somewhere in this unseen realm. Thirdly, we find what's called the abyss. I've already mentioned the abyss to you. This is where Satan is chained for that 1,000 years in Revelation 20, verse 3. The abyss is simply for Satan himself. No one else, as we can find, will go to the abyss. And then finally, lastly, I mentioned to you the lake of fire, which is number four, is the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Um, Gehenna actually literally means uh, a, a dump. There was a dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem where people would take their city trash and they would burn it. And that place was actually called Gehenna. And, and it continually burned. They kept throwing their trash and it just continually burned. It, it stunk. It was, it was nasty, burning fire that never ceased and apparently, that was the imagery that was being used in order to describe what this last abode would be, the lake of fire. It is Gehenna. And the Bible says that Gehenna is the second death. People, folks may die unrighteously and go to torment, but that's not where it ends. There's a second death that comes in the lake of fire, Gehenna. All right, now, let me just give you some common misconceptions. I've got to run through this quick. There are common misconceptions about hell. I'm going to go through this fast. Number one, some people think it's the grave only. Wrong answer. 
Number two, some people think it's figurative. Eh, wrong answer. Number three, some think it's temporary. No, it's not. It's eternal, everlasting. Some people think that it's annihilation. No, it's not annihilation. Um, everybody's an eternal being. I want you to know right now, right now everybody has, so to speak, eternal life. It's where you're going to spend it. Now, that may not be great theology, but it's still truth. All right, because I understand the theology of eternal life. But everybody's got an eternal soul and spirit existence. It's where you're going to spend it. Then number five, some people believe that somehow it provides a second chance. No. No, there's, it's not purgatory. You're not paying for sin. It's done. It says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. All right? It's forever and ever and ever. And it's sad. Some people say, they say, well, I can't believe in a God that would send anybody there. Folks, God isn't sending anybody there. He, he, he never intended for you to go there. He doesn't want you there. He pleads with you day after day after day that you wouldn't make that choice. He sent his son to die for you so you wouldn't have to go there. And all you have to do is open up your heart and receive him and his life. And if you do that, you don't go there. He, you can't look at him and say, you can't send me there. And he says, I'm not. You are born under the curse of death. You are born going there. So you've got to open up your heart and receive the answer. All right? And, and, and if you receive the answer, you won't go there. He's doing everything he can. It's like you're driving down the road in a car. There's this dude jumping out saying, bridge out, bridge out, bridge out. And you run off the cliff. And by some miraculous circumstance, you survive it. Look at the dude and say, why'd you make me drive off the cliff? He goes, I didn't make you drive off the cliff. You were headed headlong for that thing. I tried everything I could to slow you down. And you just went, Phew. Because you, you just looked and said, I know better. Well, there you go. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Let's, let's leave on some good news. All right? We've got to hurry now. Leave on some good news. Let's, let's talk about heaven for a minute. That's good news. Good news. Now, the best picture in Revelation 21 and 22, I'm not going to read to you those chapters, but if you ever wonder what life's going to be like or you ever get down, you need to turn to Revelation 21 and 22, and you're going to begin to see a little bit of what eternity in heaven is. Is going to be like Paul told us in 2nd Corinthians 12 2 that there are there are three really three references or three different levels of heaven there's not seven heavens there's three the first heaven the Bible tells us is, 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 is clouds in the atmosphere the Bible tells us the second level of heaven is the stars and space and then of course the third level of heaven is uh, where we find the place where God dwells there we go, third heaven, the place of God's dwelling. All right? Go back real quick. Can we go back, guys? Can you go back one? The first heaven was the clouds in the atmosphere, Genesis 1-8. The second heaven is the stars and, and space, which is Genesis 15-5, Genesis 22-7. Write down real quick. And then flip over to the third one is the dwelling place of God, the third heaven. Now, let me give you just a couple of, of falsehoods about heaven. Let's just dispel a couple of myths about heaven real quick. And, uh, and then I just want to read you a quick story. The first myth is there are some people who think heaven is this, somehow this state of being. You always hear these stories. They're called OBEs, out-of-body experiences. 
And you'll hear people talk about out-of-body experiences, and they'll talk about floating towards a light, and they'll talk about this and that and the other. And you know, it's, it's really, a, it's called thanatology. It's actually now a course, a college course in some universities that deal with what takes place when people die and have these experiences. And it's really kind of interesting if you study some of it, but it's also interesting that if they can interview the person quick enough, there's not only these peaceful, wonderful stories that they talk about, but there are some folks that will come back with very dramatic, uh, a fiery, just really, really uh, horrific stories as well. And, and, and so humanity as a whole is coming to grips with this fact of life after death. And there are some who think that, that heaven is this state, somehow this state of being. Uh, you know, you, you, you maybe nirvana or you just, you know, heaven is, heaven is whatever is the greatest state of being you can imagine. Well, well that's, that's a falsehood. Heaven is a place. It's not just a state of being. It is a place that you go to. Secondly, um, there are some who believe that all we do is rest there. Heaven is like, you know, one big lazy farm. You know, it's just, that's not exactly true either. Um, it's, not just, it's not just a place you rest. It's, it's a place that we will enjoy. It's a place that will be contented and fulfilled. But it's not just like you sit around and, and, and rest and just, and just be lazy. And, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute as well. And then thirdly, some have even espoused that we won't know each other, and that's not exactly true. We won't know each other exactly like we know each other now, but we will be aware of one another and who we are. It will be in a, in a much purer knowledge and understanding. I wrote this down. I put down that heaven will be the most fulfilling, completing, whole experience that we could ever know. Heaven, in heaven, you will be purely satisfied. Now, we don't, it's, hard to, it's, it's hard for me to find the vocabulary to talk about that because we're never purely satisfied. There's always something more we got to do. There's something more we always want. There's something this, something that. We are never purely satisfied. Heaven is when you come to this place where all of a sudden you're content in your own skin. You're satisfied completely. There is nothing more that you could imagine that could ever be like it is that moment for all of eternity. You know, that, that, to me, that's the greatest. You know, he, heaven isn't about, you know, just golden streets and gates of pearl. You know, money's not going to be in zip in heaven. I mean, it's not, it isn't it going to have the allure. That's why it's spread. That's why John in his, this vision has everything in these, these precious metals and jewels and gold. He's saying, There's, this stuff's going to be spread around so much, you aren't even going to care. It's just, it's, it's of no value. You will be satisfied completely. Whole. Can you imagine being whole? Whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole. That's what heaven will be like. I read this years ago, but I found it again. I was running through my notes, and, and I'm done. I'm going to read you this story, and I'm done. This is from Max Lucado. Some of you may remember this in one of his books. He says, I'm almost home. After five days, four hotel beds, 11 restaurants, and 22 cups of coffee, I'm almost home. After eight airplane seats, five airports, two delays, one book, and 513 packages of peanuts, I'm almost home. The plane resonates under me. A baby cries behind me. Businessmen converse around me. Cool air blows from a hole above me. But all that matters is what is before me. Home. Home. It was my first thought when I awoke this morning. It was my first thought when I stepped down from the last podium. It was my first thought when I said goodbye to my last host at the last airport. There's no door like the one to your own house. 
There's no better place to put your feet than under your own table. There's no coffee like coffee out of your own mug. There's no meal like the one at your own table. And there's no embrace like the one from your own family. Home. The longest part of going home is the last part. The plane's taxiing to the terminal from the runway. I'm the fellow the flight attendant always has to tell to sit down. I'm the guy with one hand on my briefcase and the other on my seatbelt. I have learned that there is a critical split second in which I can bolt down the aisle into the first class section before the tributaries of people begin emptying into the main aisle. I don't do that on every flight. I only do that when I'm going home. There's a leap of the heart as I exit the plane. I almost get nervous as I walk up the ramp. I step past people. I grip my satchel. My stomach tightens. My palms sweat. I walk into the lobby like an actor walking onto the stage. Have you ever thought about that coming off that thing? You just stage. The curtain is lifted and the audience stands in a half moon. Most of the people see that I'm not the one they want and look past me. But from the side, I hear the familiar shriek of two little girls, Daddy, and I turn and see them, faces scrubbed, standing on chairs, bouncing up and down in joy as the man in their life walks towards them. Jenna stops bouncing just long enough to clap. She applauds. I don't know who told her to do that, but you can bet I'm not going to tell her to stop. Behind them, I see a third face, little Sarah, only a few months old, deeply asleep, she furrows her brow slightly in reaction to the squealing. And then I see a fourth face, my wife's face. Somehow she's found time to comb her hair, put on a new dress, put on the extra sparkle. Somehow, though wrung out and done in, she'll make me feel that my week is the only week worth talking about. Faces of home. That is what makes the promise at the end of life so compelling. Rejoice and be glad, because great, is your reward in heaven. And what is our reward? It's going home. Whatever you do, don't miss home. Don't miss home. Stand with me, will you? I don't know that we'll do this every Wednesday night, but I've done this every Wednesday night. We've gathered and just talked about the last days with every head bowed and every eye closed. Holy Ghost, you are perfect in the way you do the work of the ministry. And Lord, we can share and teach, but only you can reach into the human heart. So we count on you right now to do what only you can do. Spirit of God, come again to this place. Move amongst your people. Lord, I ask you tonight that you would give assurance that your spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But Lord, at the same time, I would ask that those who are unsure, those who have alienated themselves from you, those who need to do business perhaps with you, those who need to make sure, Lord, that tonight is only you can do lovingly, graciously, gently, kindly, that you'd reach into their heart and say, I'm talking to you. Don't miss home. Don't miss home. 
With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I'm going to look and see, but you're actually just going to do this before God. If you're saying right now, you know, I need to do business with God before I go tonight. I, I want him to know I, I don't want to miss home. I don't want anything between my soul and my Savior. I want to be up to date. I want to be right before God. I, I, I want to make sure everything's in proper order because I want to go home. That's you. Lift your hand. 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 Keep it up. You can put your hands down. You know, it just has amazed me how the Holy Spirit has been so faithful. Thank you. Fifteen of you lifted your hand tonight. Thank you. Thank you that you were just obedient to God. And you know what? If he's talking to you, he's going he's gonna to do a work that's going to give you comfort and assurance and let you know that if you'll confess your sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of his word. You know, the only sin, let me just tell you this, the only sin Jesus can't forgive is the one you refuse to confess. That's what the Bible says. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it. So I'll tell you one more time tonight, folks, whether you lifted your hand or you did not, we're just going to agree together. And we're just going to declare together. And if you're sincere and you link up with this prayer that I will pray and we'll all pray it together, I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit will sweep in and, and, and let assurance come to your heart. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you tonight for your faithfulness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're knocking on my door. I'm glad for that. I want that. And tonight, I confess my sin. And I say I'm sorry. But I stand on your word that you are faithful and just to forgive me. I want that. I receive that. And I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And that power will empower me. It will give me life and newness. And tonight, I am different. It is changed. There is newness. And I receive that. I thank you that I can stand with great confidence that when my time comes, I can go home. Not because of me, but because of you. Thank you, Jesus. I love you lots. I give you my life. I'm going to serve you all out. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Give them a big hand clap. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be the name of our God. That is so cool. The greatest, the greatest thing, I cannot tell you, I mean, it's just like a selfish little thing I get to enjoy, is when you watch those hands go, and you just go, wow, wow. Nobody can do that but God. Nobody can get into a heart but the Lord. Wow, wow. I encourage you, share, share with folks, and um, let's take as many home with us as we can. Amen. Lord, seal your work in our heart. Cause us, cause us just to love people and give us the words, the way, the moments that we can do that. Lord, we want to be faithful in our part of all of this. And, and Lord, we know you're going to provide opportunity. Help us, Lord, to see it. We don't want to miss it. Give us courage. Give us boldness. 
Uh, give us the words, the, the, the thing we need to say. Lord, we don't want to alienate anyone, but Lord, we know that your truth must be spoken in such a way it brings people to that crossroad. So we're going to need your help. But Lord, we really want, we really want to see that happen. It blesses us so much to hear, to see the sounds and the sights of the new birth. It really helps us. It blesses us. And Lord, it's all you. You, you are the only one that could do that. And we just honor you tonight. Go with us. Keep us safe. Bring us back on your day to honor you again. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you. Love each other. And uh, God bless you. You're released.